It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Antibiotics are an essential part of modern medicine. But when bacteria develop a resistance to them, the consequences can be deadly. On the hunt for a solution, scientists are investigating an innovation that has been largely neglected for almost a century. And wherefore art thou correspondent this morning? In the Globe Theatre, apparently, celebrating the 400-year anniversary of William Shakespeare's Bumper Book of Plays. First up, though... Today, the Justice Department is announcing significant enforcement actions against the largest, most violent, and most prolific fentanyl trafficking operation in the world. That operation is run by the Sinaloa In April, Cartel. America's Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the United States Department of Justice had indicted four sons of El Chapo, the imprisoned head of the Sinaloa cartel, which prosecutors claim is one of the biggest drug trafficking organizations in Mexico. The Justice Department is attacking every aspect of the cartel's operations. We have charged suppliers in China who sell fentanyl precursors to the cartel. The charges relate to bringing the powerful synthetic opioid fentanyl into the United States. It was part of a larger push to crack down on fentanyl trafficking from Mexican drug cartels as overdose deaths caused by the substance rise in the United States. Money launderers who enable the cartel to fund its operations and the cartel's leaders, who are sons of the now-imprisoned former head of the cartel, known as El Chapo. Eight of those defendants are now in the... El Chapo's sons, known as the Chapitos, deny the indictment's allegation. Drug cartels in Mexico used to mostly traffic marijuana and cocaine from Colombia up north. Now, more and more of their business is trafficking fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. This shift marks a deeper change within the drug cartels. They're not just pivoting to new drugs, but also to new sectors, with a profound impact on those who live in Mexico. Drug cartels in Mexico are getting more powerful and more diversified. Sarah Burke is our Mexico City bureau chief. In fact, in many cases, it's better to refer to them as gangs or criminal groups because they're also moving into other businesses. So they do illicit things such as people smuggling and illegal mining, but also extorting legitimate businesses. The upshot is that many of these groups look like the mafia now rather than groups that just traffic drugs. But if drug trafficking was already proving super lucrative for these cartels, 
Why are they changing the business model? I mean, we should be clear, drugs are still lucrative, both in terms of trafficking cocaine, but also in terms of making synthetics that are very easy to make and very small, so very easy to traffic. So some estimates reckon that the Sinaloa cartel, one of the most established, maybe makes 40% of its income from drugs still. But partly, this is just a monster that will eat anything. So these groups want to make more and more money, and they can do it by doing things other than drugs. And also, there are some groups that don't have the connections to traffic or make drugs. This is partly because various policies from the Mexican government have encouraged changes that have helped these groups diversify. So Felipe Calderón started a war on drugs in 2006, and the result of this was the number of groups splintered and multiplied. And so you have more than 200 today, up from 76 a decade before. The Drug Enforcement Administration, the agency in the United States responsible for combating illegal drug trafficking, only recognises nine major drug trafficking organisations, and that's out of those over 200 that we just mentioned. Okay, so you mentioned the American side, but what's the Mexican president's plan to tackle this? So the current president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who's often just known as AMLO, his security policy is mainly about tackling the root causes. So hugs and not bullets. He has done some strikes on taking out leaders of the gangs, arresting them, but he's not done that much more to tackle them. And he's largely been indifferent to corruption within the state, which did not start with him, but has continued under him. And that's also allowed the gangs to expand into new areas and have more relations with the state. What kind of new areas are they expanding into? What are they trying now? One of the big things is to find ways to profit off the legal economy. So after drugs, most people reckon extortion is the biggest source of income for these gangs. There's big money to be made in sectors like agriculture and mining. And this is not just about extorting taco stands, although they also do that. Mexico exports $3 billion worth of avocados every year, mainly from the western state of Michoacán. I went there to talk to people and I spoke with one man who said for the last three years he's paid an annual fee of 10,000 pesos, that's about $560 per hectare of his farm to a local criminal group. The gangs are professional. They come with data on the size of his farm. They tell him when to hold back stock to push up prices. They do similar things with the fishing industry. They force fishermen to sell their catch at a cut price, for example. And they also are in many other areas, apart from drugs and extortion. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. There's still some drug trafficking, there's extortion, and you're telling me there's even more illegal activity? Yeah, I mean, anything you can think of, they're involved in gun trafficking, trafficking natural resources, mining, iron ore, stealing oil and selling it. But another big thing is people smuggling. This has got very lucrative. A lot of people in the region want to go to the United States. So there's a lot of migrants around the region trying to cross and they have to cross through Mexico. The border has tightened as well, so it's harder to get across. So often these people have to pay coyotes, they used to be known, but often they're now linked to crime groups. And they often kidnap to extort these migrants, to extort their families, or they just simply charge the migrants to traffic them across Mexico and across the border. That can be up to $12,500 per person, according to one study. Okay, Sarah, what does all this mean for people who actually live in Mexico? I mean, it's very bad for Mexicans. It's not that you just have these gangs who are trafficking drugs and they need just a port or a road or some corrupt officials to help them. 
to profit off the land, they basically need control of the land. There are lots of clashes between groups to try and control territory. And obviously there are lots of groups and therefore more chances for clashes. This is causing not just homicides, which have, you know, shot up since 2006. There are over 30,000 per year, but it's also the rise of disappearances. These are mainly believed to be murders without a body. And beyond violence, there's also the toll it takes on the economy. So Mexico has pretty sluggish economic growth. And that's partly because of all of this. You know, small business owners have to pay some of their money in bribes. They don't want to expand because they don't want to attract the attention of these gangs. So all in all, it affects all of Mexico and all of Mexicans in in every way. And why is the government's response falling flat? Because the government's response remains drug-focused. Gangs are now very able to influence politics. They're very intertwined with politicians because of the levels of corruption and the fact they have so much ability to threaten people and make them do what they want. Before the midterm elections in 2021, nearly 40 candidates were killed by these gangs and they were assumed to be candidates who wouldn't work with the gangs or the gangs didn't like. So all the action is basically targeting drugs. That's partly because of the United States, which has obviously long had a war on drugs and now is particularly focused again on this because of the fentanyl crisis. And a lot of the fentanyl comes from Mexico. Earlier this month, AMLO did do a lot on this front. He introduced a law applying strict controls on importing chemicals that can be used to make synthetic drugs. But that's just one aspect now of what these gangs do. And Sarah, in your view, what more do you think should be done? I mean, I think everyone agrees that this requires a very holistic national response of the type that is, of course, very difficult to do. So you need to weed out corruption. You need to have more safety and security for local officials. You need a functioning justice system so that people who do commit crimes are actually brought to justice, which is something that doesn't happen. You need the state to provide better security. And of course, Drugs are a part of it. You need the United States to tackle drug consumption or potentially legalise it. But at the moment, because of the fentanyl crisis, it's very unlikely that we're going to see a change from the status quo. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'd like to welcome the witnesses to this, our final session on the antimicrobial potential of bacteriophages. At the end of April, a British Science, Innovation and Technology Committee met to discuss a potential solution to one of the world's biggest health challenges, antibiotic resistance. According to one estimate, It directly caused 1.2 million deaths in 2019 and was indirectly implicated in 3.8 million more. And the problem is getting worse. Bacteria are evolving ways to fend off our drugs, 
meaning antibiotics are no longer a silver bullet. But a possible ally in our fight against bacteria is generating some interest. And it's not what you might expect. Viruses have a bad rap, and they've gotten a particularly bad reputation in recent years because since SARS-CoV-2 caused the COVID pandemic with all of its disastrous consequences, we tend to think of them as exclusively evildoers. Gilad Amit is a science correspondent for The Economist. But if we could find and exploit viruses that attack things that attack us, like bacteria, especially the antibiotic-resistant kind, then because they are our enemy's enemy, they could be our friends. This isn't just theoretical. These viruses exist. They're enormously abundant and they're very effective. They're called bacteriophages, or phages for short, and they are very good at killing bacteria. Okay, so I've never heard of phages. Are they a new thing? Far from it. They're not an emerging technology. They're a technology that emerged and got forgotten about. The first patient was treated with phages in 1919 by Felix Durrell at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. And they showed great promise in the early years. But then once penicillin and other antibiotics came out and were mass-produced, phages fell from favor. Antibiotics have been on the rise ever since. They're massively used and they're essential to modern medicine. But there is a downside, which is that bacteria are becoming increasingly resistant to them. And pharmaceutical companies aren't really in the antibiotics business anymore, which kind of makes sense because you invest billions in developing a new drug and then you know that in a few years' time it's going to stop being effective. So all of this means that phage therapy should be rescued from the dustbin of history. Okay, so are you saying that bacteria don't develop resistance to phages as they do to common chemical antibiotics? So that's a really important question. And I think it's really important to be clear and say that bacteria can develop resistance to phages as well. But there are several reasons why we should be less worried about this. Firstly, it's because phages are living antibiotics, so they can also evolve. So as bacteria evolve new defenses against antibiotics or against phages, phages can then evolve in turn and hopefully we can win the arms race. They have other advantages too, for example, because they are alive and they can reproduce, that means you don't need to have a massive dose. You can start with a small dose and it replicates inside the body. There are a couple of other things we need to be aware of. For example, they're incredibly target-specific, so sometimes... It's not just a case of finding a phage for a particular type of bacterium, but finding a phage for the particular strain of that bacterium that infects a particular person. So they are hard work sometimes, but they are effective. I should say that the consensus is at the moment that they are safe as well. Because they're so selective in their choice of targets, they don't really do much damage either to the human body or to the positive bacteria that live in our guts, for example, that are seen as important for our health. And a point that phage researchers like to make is that while many people have negative reactions to antibiotics, the negative reactions to phages are much, much smaller. Okay, so less negative reactions is definitely good news. But are they as effective as antibiotics when it comes to fighting disease? So that's the most important question in this whole business, because even though phage therapy has been around for a century or more, there have been very few clinical trials conducted. And that's what needs to happen in order for us to get answers. So there's only been one clinical trial that took place in the UK, for instance, and that was um, 2009. That test did find some efficacy against ear infections. But there really is a shortage of data. And that, as a result, means that phages are 
very hard to access. Uh, in the UK, in the US, phages are really a treatment of last resort when doctors have nothing else to throw at a bacterial infection. So in the last 12 years, 12 patients in the UK have been given phages. So we're really at the very early stages. And there's a huge gap between the potential and where we are today. I should say the one country that is living in the future in this regard is Georgia. They have a culture where phages are widely prescribed by doctors, widely believed in by the public. And this is because they happen to have one of the world's oldest and most established institutes of phage research. It's been there for 100 years, and they treat more than 500 international patients a year who all come because phages aren't available where they come from. It's not cheap. In addition to the flights to Georgia, you need to shell out something like 4,000 euros for the two weeks of on-site treatment and then several boxes full of bottled phage to take home and, and, and swallow there. I visited their lab in Tbilisi for the Economist's Science and Technology podcast, Babbage, last month, and there I was able to find vials of phages in pharmacies. This is for intestinal problems. This is the combination of the and different these, these, are, these are boxes just like anything you'd get in a pharmacy. They should be kept in the refrigerator. Okay, and these are little files... How much they can take? 10 milliliters each. There's 10 a, milliliters, it's a 50 milliliter in sort of it's, box. It looks a little bit like um, vanilla extract. You know, sort of yellow. You can find out more about how they make phages and how they're already treating patients by listening to the show. But if this tech is so promising, why isn't the rest of the world following in Georgia's footsteps? So really, phages are a victim of antibiotic success because they were so effective, so easy to use. The world really saw no need to continue exploring phages. But now that antibiotics are in crisis, I think it's fair to say, the expertise and interest that there exists in Georgia is starting to spread around the world. And you can see this in the numbers of clinical trials that have been run. In the past three years, there have been more than in the 20 years before that. A couple of companies worth highlighting here. There's a Portuguese company called Technophage. They're running trials on diabetic foot ulcers. There's an Israeli firm called Biomex. They're targeting quite a common bacterium called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And there's an American firm called Adaptive Phage Therapeutics, and they have three trials in the works at the moment. Infections in prosthetic joints, which is a real problem, another one on diabetic foot ulcers, and also infections in patients with cystic fibrosis. So it doesn't cure the cystic fibrosis, but it can help those patients clear up infections that they're prone to. But Gilad, that still doesn't sound like much for a therapy that could solve one of the world's biggest health challenges. Why aren't we seeing hundreds and hundreds more trials? So the real problem here is money. Clinical trials are expensive, especially ones that need to prove the worth of an entirely new family of treatment. There is also another problem which is unique to phages. Because they're natural, they can't be patented. You can't patent a phage in the same way that you couldn't patent a giraffe. And that means that companies have to be very inventive. So, for example, some are tweaking the genomes of phages because an edited phage is a patentable phage. There's a Danish company called Sniper Biome that is working in this direction. And even if the phages themselves can't be tweaked and can't be patented, you can patent things made from them, like dressings or implants, or you can patent bits of the manufacturing process. Okay, so despite the business challenges, it sounds like there could be some success on the horizon. Gilad, do you foresee a future full of phages? Well, I certainly do if they prove to be effective. One of the big challenges that phages face is they are foreign agents. And when they're inside a person's body, perhaps our immune systems will produce antibodies to neutralize them and then effectively make it impossible for us to ever use them again. Now, even if 
All the clinical trials turn out to have great results and all of these problems turn out to be avoidable. It's very, very unlikely that phages will replace antibiotics. But what is possible is that in those rare cases where no antibiotics work, phages can step in and patients who currently don't have much hope will have something to turn to. But that requires building the kind of infrastructure and credibility that uh, I was able to see in Georgia and that is, is lacking in countries like the UK. So it's very promising. There's a lot of work to be done. And hopefully governments can help facilitate the kind of innovation we need to get us there. Gilad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ori. And you can hear more about Gilad's trip to Georgia by listening to our sister show, Babbage. Find it wherever your podcasts are dispensed. We're always trying to improve our podcasts and we need your help. Whether you're a loyal fan or a newer listener, we want to hear from you. Please do us a favour and tell us what you think by filling out our listener survey. It'll only take you a few minutes. Just head to economist.com slash intelligence survey. There's a bit in Julius Caesar where after the murder of Caesar, Cassius says to Brutus... How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown? It's a brilliantly meta-theatrical moment, but it also now encapsulates something about how Shakespeare's huge range of work has been constantly reinvented and reimagined to speak to new ages, in new contexts, to new audiences. Faye Lomas writes about culture for The Economist. He mastered many genres, from raucous comedies to soaring tragedies to bloodthirsty histories. But much of the variety that makes him so loved would not have existed were it not for one particular book. Twenty twenty-three is the four hundred-year anniversary of the publication of the first folio. The folio is the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays, and it's the first time that half of them were published at all. Without it, 18 of Shakespeare's plays, including Julius Caesar, Twelfth Night, Macbeth and The Tempest, might never have survived. And what potentially we would have had is a very different vision of Shakespeare, maybe a vision of him as more of a historical dramatist because more of his histories had previously been published, and we would have lost some of the more complex comedies, some of his most famous tragedies. To celebrate the anniversary in London, Shakespeare's Globe is staging an anniversary season of his works that would have been lost without the publication of the first folio. My producer William and I travel down to the theatre to see a copy of the first folio for ourselves and meet some of the team involved in that production of The Comedy of Errors. We've made it to Shakespeare's Globe on South Bank in London, where we are in a very busy foyer surrounded by school children. And I'm actually standing in front of a copy of the first folio. It's one of the few surviving copies. It's a beautiful old book, slightly yellowing pages, slightly faded print, but I can still make out the text very clearly. The first folio was not called the first folio when it was published. It was the comedies, histories, and tragedies of Mr. William Shakespeare, etc. There are 36 plays in the folio. 18 of them were never published prior to this date. 
Farah Karim Cooper is Professor of Shakespeare Studies at King's College London and co-leads the education team at The Globe. It was first published in 1623, which was seven years after Shakespeare died. The volume of plays were gathered together by two of Shakespeare's fellow players who were in the same theatre company with him. Basically, the folio is a dedication to his work and a sort of testimony to their friendship as well. Shakespeare's Globe is a theatre that's built on the south bank of the River Thames in London, and it's built just a few metres away from where Shakespeare's original theatre was. Going into Shakespeare's Globe is like taking part in some kind of time warp where the replica outdoor theatre complete with thatched roof and indoor candlelit playhouse are surrounded by the buzz of modern central London. Many of the productions there use historic elements, including live sound effects. In Shakespeare's day, they would have created thunder by rolling a cannonball through a wooden trough. But the Globe have got the next best thing in the form of a thunder sheet and other contraptions, replicating traditional methods that came in later. Ready? So, just to reiterate, we're going to run all of this, and it's going to be so good, we won't be able to even have to rehearse. And we'll get the most hits The Economist podcast has ever got. Without the folio, there's a number of plays we would never have, and comedy is one of them. Hi there, I'm Sean Holmes. I'm the Associate Artistic Director here at Shakespeare's Globe and I'm also directing our upcoming production of Comedy of Errors. One of the brilliant things about being the Globe is that every day you sort of come in and live and breathe Shakespeare. That can sometimes be problematic in terms of this sort of idea of this holy genius statue figure. But what's great about working at the Globe and what's great particularly this year with the celebration of the folio is we're dealing with a, a playwright a theatre artist, somebody who's passionately interested in the relationship between the actor and audience. We're not trying to recreate 400 years ago, that would be ridiculous, but we are absolutely in conversation with a writer 400 years ago and it still feels contemporary because he has this deep and profound understanding of theatre and how it can transform, excite and empower audiences and actors alike. Good senior Angelo, you must excuse us all. My life is shrewish for natural fans. Say... That I with you at the shop. Hello, I am George Fouracres. I am an actor here at Shakespeare's Globe and I'm playing Dromeo of Ephesus in the Comedy of Errors. The whole idea of the folio to me is, is the best thing in the world. I love the fact that the, the reason we have these plays is because this guy died quite young and his best friends were like, well, we've got to... We've got to put all of his stuff together. We've got to put it out there and share it with everybody. And that's a corny thing to say, but that is what theatre is about. That's what performance is about. You really get that sense when you come here and see a show. When you come here and the groundlings are all in the yard and the play, everyone is all around you in that big horseshoe shape, one and a half thousand people, and it's all outdoors and it feels very, I don't know, there's something very uh, emotionally connective about that. It's very likely that Shakespeare wouldn't be the enormous national and global literary figure that he is today if we didn't have the folio. Farrah Kareem Cooper again. 
What's really interesting is that Shakespeare becomes this sort of exceptionalized figure of English identity in the 18th century. And this is a very different Shakespeare than you would have seen as a jobbing playwright in the 16th century. And I think without the folio, the 18th century literary figures and writers and actors and thinkers would have been less interested in Shakespeare had there not been a book. The publication of the first folio 400 years ago has fundamentally changed the Shakespeare that we have today, not just because of plays that it has enabled to survive, but also because of the image that it's given us of him as someone who is to be read and studied as well as performed. Now, in some ways, perhaps that's a mixed blessing and theatres who work on Shakespeare today are very keen to make sure that we preserve the image of him too as a man of the theatre. Perhaps, though, what's most remarkable of all is that the folio was published in the first place. Gathering together a playwright's complete works was a very unusual thing to do at the time. And actually, only one other commercial playwright had a similar complete works published, and that was Ben Jonson. And it really is largely thanks to the publication of this book that the Bard's works have been able to endure as they have across the centuries. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.